Welcome to your Active Stack Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week we take a closer look at ChatGPT and what these large language models tell us about artificial intelligence. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active Stack Brief podcast. Today I'm joined by Joanna Bryson, Professor of Ethics and Technology at the Hertie School of Governance. Hi, Joanna. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm very good. Thank you for asking. Um, so we are here to talk about uh, Chat uh, GPT, a very popular language model um, that has seen quite an unprecedented success, you could say. Um, but a question that is bothering my mind is to what extent is this uh, AI new compared to what we have seen before? So I think that's a really interesting question. Uh, it, it is new in some ways, as everyone who's playing with it knows, right? They're, they're so excited because, and I think part of what's going on is it's sort of exposing to the public something they haven't seen before. So, I mean, none of us have really seen it this way. That it could be quite this conversational. And yet the basic technology is exactly the same as search. And what I'm trying to explain, I mean, we just had a, um, an offsite here at Hurdy School where, where the other faculty are, you know, in a panic about, you know, some of them didn't know about it. Some of them have been playing with it extensively. And they're saying, how is this going to affect teaching? And so there I was making the analogy to search, you know, it's, it, because they're, they're astounded that it sounds so fluent and then it's so completely wrong, right, that it makes up references and things like that. And if it was a human, you would be thinking, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're, you're playing games with me or whatever. But once you understand that it's just a different interface into exactly the same kind of information that we pull off the web when we pull off search, well, then you also understand why it's a threat to uh, Google's business model once they get a handle on it. But also, um, you, you get a better understanding of the, why it will come up with fictions or confabulation as well. And the whole way it's working is it's synthesizing a lot of work that we've seen before. So first of all, um, this goes back to, like I said, the origins of search and, you know, that you used to look at, you know, maybe not even way back in the day, you wouldn't just look at the first page of responses. You might actually look back, you know, 10 pages to find the thing you were really looking for. So there's a lot of things that just aren't what you were really looking for. But it's also, um, going back to last summer, I, I wish uh, more people realized this is very relevant to the Wired article that I did, uh, the online Wired article about Lambda. You know, it was some, I, they titled it, they make up the titles, something like, uh, um, uh, one day AI will be just as human, uh, you know, indistinguishable from being human, what then? And, and that's the point, is that we're, while we're being confused about um, you know why? Why is it so? Why is it so shallow? Why? Why would it just lie? You know, we're still thinking we're talking to a human because there's nothing else you can talk to, right? But I'm hoping, and in fact, this was my very first paper, uh, my very first AI ethics paper, in 1998, uh, was called "Just an Artifact," and 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 a co-author and I, Phil Kime, speculated that once people really get experience of AI, they might get over their fascination with it. And I think this is really the sort of first social-like experience that a lot of people are having. So I'm hoping now they're finally going to get cheap clarity about realizing that you're, you know, like if you if you make an AI uh, self-portrait, 
it's no more you than, you know, a painting is you, right? That kind of thing. So I hope people will get over some of their bizarre beliefs about, you know, AI being another person or AI being a way to be immortal. Chat GPT has been uh, very popular indeed in the last uh, days, uh, but we have seen uh, Google, for example, developing a very similar language model, but they prefer not to uh, release it to the public. Uh, also because they considered it too risky. So what sort of uh, societal challenges are we looking at when dealing with this sort of AI? So Google has a different sort of threat profile than uh, OpenAI does, because we do think of Google as being able to give us correct responses or, or at least access to information where we can clearly see whose fault it is if it's wrong. Um, and so I think that's why they couldn't just release it, um, because people would expect it to be really, you know, I don't know, a person or, or real or correct. I mean, you saw even their test, and that, that's why Lambda hit the news, was because one of their testers, who wasn't like a full-time Googler, he, he seemed to be some kind of a shaman or something. But anyway, that he decided it really was a person or something. So you can see that even professional testers can fool themselves into thinking they're dealing with another self. Um, for the reasons I talked about before, that's not what's really happening. Um, it, it is just a, it's just another kind of search. So uh, I think, yeah, well, there's two possibilities. Uh, the positive uh, optimistic Google is quite smart theory is that they just have a different kind of threat profile. They can't have uh, misinformation being communicated. So they've got to figure out a better way to package it than as, you know, your, your plastic palette's fun to be with that sometimes give you useful information and sometimes doesn't. But uh, on the, the negative, uh, and, and I would say it's true of some of the Googlers I've met, uh, side of it is that they're waiting until they make a real person. I hope that's not why they're waiting. And just to follow up on that, um, there have been uh, concerns from the side of Google that uh, this might uh, revolutionize uh, the way search engines are done. And, uh, of course, uh, chat uh, GPT is currently not connected to the Internet. Uh, but when it will be plugged into the Internet, uh, what sort of uh, uses can we expect that we, we are uh, not seeing now? Yeah, uh, you can, you'll see. Um, I, I, had a com I had a discussion about this on LinkedIn. Um, I, I think it's a very real threat uh, to Google, especially coming simultaneously with the EU threatening the targeted advertising revenue. Um, but uh, some people like Gary Marcus were like explaining to me uh, that, that, you know, oh, that's not how it works right now. Well, like I said, it's basically search. So once you decide to go through, so mostly large language models, you know, to deal with the amount of data they have, they just kind of lose all that information about where did you get um, this particular idea or this turn of phrase or this kind of information, right? So, they, so they're currently set up so they don't keep track of that. But you could imagine making sort of, a, again, this is like a basing on human-like uh, stuff. If you, if you see something that's an outlier or something, then you might keep uh, track of a point or two where what was the source. So when there's something that, that's distinctive, then you remember, you, you, you construct an uh, episodic memory, basically. You, you construct a, 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 a careful link. So I could easily imagine this being architected to, uh, to perform search, to be able to back up its claims, things like that. I mean, easily isn't quite the right word, but I could imagine that with some probability 
uh, at least increasing the quality of the responses, and that would then become the preferred point way to access information. So I don't know who will do it first. I, I, I think there is space within that to differentiate. Um, so you could have more than one company providing, providing you know, differentiated services. At the same time, um, once you get on top of that, those problems of that tech, then it's going to be a lot easier to differentiate. Uh, that's been my experience. I, I was actually, my PhD was integral into some of the character-based AI. And, and it's actually, once you get the, the, you know, all the little behaviors uh, down, you make a library of like, you know, the basic software, making a different personality or slightly different priorities, that's the easy part. <laughs> and so, so it may very well be that this will be another thing where whoever gets it will, will dominate the way that Google has been dominating the search market. It could be someone else that, that winds up dominating. The obvious concern right now is, uh, is Microsoft because basically OpenAI um, although for whatever, technically they're not in-house, they're, they're effectively in-house. There, there's huge amounts of money flowing and data and whatever flowing back and forth between Microsoft and uh, OpenAI. So the concern is that they might actually get good. Of course, it could be someone else. When, once you get good at this stuff, you know, it could be a Chinese company. There, there could be all kinds of people might be uh, moving in the space now, now that these breakthroughs are being made. Um, it, it could be a Ukrainian company. You know, it, it, it could come from anywhere. Um, I think that we forget sometimes that the digital is a great leveler, although I don't want to understate the amount of infrastructure, enormous infrastructure and, and power that goes into building these kinds of models. Uh, so it, it wouldn't be easy for it to be a Ukrainian company right now. Indeed, but um, quite an exciting time and, and very competitive field, I would say. Uh, but you already hinted at the fact that, you know, um, in university, people are already thinking of how this is going to change education, for example, uh, in terms of uh, essays. Um, we have, uh, of course, similar conversation in the journalistic field as well as newsroom are thinking how to become more efficient. Um, I, I know it's a very difficult question to reply to right now, but what sort of uh, transformations uh, can we expect? And, and what are the social domains um, this technology will affect the most? Okay, uh, you're right. It's very hard to anticipate everything. I don't think we are going to anticipate everything. Um, uh, well, well, you know, there's all kinds of famous uh, historic examples of people like uh, when the when the first Xerox machine was made, the the um, they tried to base their estimates of of the revenue they could generate by how much uh, carbon paper was sold, but you could only make three copies, and so nobody thought of what it was like to be able to make that many copies. So um, similarly, I do think that uh, we we haven't thought of all the ways that people will use this technology, and we haven't done a good job so far of measuring. The impacts of the AI, uh, you know, the AI revolution that's already here. I, you don't see the 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 impacts in GDP of all the spell checking and the mapping and just how much more efficient, how much planning assistance we're getting. Um, so so it's really hard to fully understand this. But I will make one prediction about it, and it comes from thinking about again the the problems of marking their students, and you can try to motivate the students. Uh, to first of all to go ahead and learn how to use these tools, but also to be honest about uh, you know making sure they can still write. And we all know students. A lot of I don't know if we all know. Many of us have noticed that students have forgotten how to handwrite. They're all typing. 
And so there's certain kinds of skills that do fall away, you know, arithmetic, things like that. A bunch of us can still do arithmetic in our heads. A bunch of us can still navigate with maps, but quite a lot of people have trouble doing those kinds of skills because they, ha they aren't practicing them. Um, so, so similarly, it may be that people will get very bad at writing for themselves. So then the big question is, well, what does that mean for journalism? What does that, you said something about, oh, that, that we academics write essays all the time. Well, you know, we don't just write essays. We write about like new things that we've done, you know, innovations that, and you're not going to go out. I mean, again, this is, I, I've talked to Googlers that expect, you know, their, their chatbots to innovate for them. But I don't think you're going to find that. I, I think uh, you're, the, the innovation is happening. It's like the creative repatching together of what other people have done already. So, so true innovation um, is not going to come that way. However, for everybody who does productive stuff, like, you know, like, uh, you know, if you're a journalist that's going out and reporting right now what's actually happening, you know, in a battlefield, you're not going to be replaced. But if you're a journalist who writes, um, you know, I don't know, you know, feel good pieces about, about uh, um, you know, <laughs> Star Trek versus uh, Battlestar Galactica or something, then, you um, then you could get replaced. And and Mark Riedel, oh no, no, it's Darren Bell that did a did a great version of the oh, it was Star Trek Star Wars for him. But anyway, you know, those pieces, you know, the stuff that's just filler in the in the free newspapers, that can be easily turned out. The high quality stuff um, will you know will require good people to to write it or co-author it or however you want to think about this. The um, and, and so I think one of the things we're really facing, and I've been worrying about this for a while, is that we're really going to be differentiating hard both our audiences and also um, um, uh, colleagues. You know, so for those of us who teach, it's not only that we teach; it's also that we mark. And um, and, and teaching is hard. It's hard to tell if a student is you know making stuff up or really understands it or whatever. You know, and I think we're going to see differentiation in people's capacities to detect whether they're marking a bot or a, a, a real student, and that is going to be um, that is going to be problematic in a lot of ways. Um, as I said, for the students, we can just say to them, "Hey, if you want a good education, then you know, don't use this all the time. Practice." You know, and I, I had to do that already. We, again, this is something we've already seen, like. Just using the internet, you could you could download a, a program that does anything, but you say no, please uh, actually write this yourself. You need to learn and practice these skills. And then, of course, you have exams where they have to do it with paper and pencil. Well, my colleagues here were saying we cannot have tests where people aren't typing. When nobody, we can't read their handwriting. It would slow down. You know, it would it will increase the amount of labor involved in assessment. So what we'll probably do is go back to like it was in the quote unquote battle days where there will be some real, a smaller number of really critical assessments that are oral and people that panic in those contexts will not do well. And, but I don't see a way around it. So I think that is, I think there's gonna be more transparency about, about human differentials. And, and I, I have worried about that for a while, that, that might be one of the things that AI uh, does to our society. And I've taken uh, on board your invite uh, to basically become a war reporter, not to be replaced by an AI. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think I think this too. I mean, going out and finding real researchers uh, to talk to is also some kind of skill. <laughs> <laughs> True. Well, yeah, um, they write a lot. I could imagine somebody trying to synthesize this all off of my LinkedIn. You know, do you did you see this thing that um, these researchers uh, put together? They trained GPT three. 
on Dan Dennett's, you know, collected works. I mean, he has so many essays on his webpage and with his consent. And then they asked him a series of questions and they also asked GPT-3 like four times. So you were looking at five answers and you had to pick out which one was Dennett. I'm one of the people that was like, you know, I'm not actually a Dunnett expert, but I am his friend. And I, I'm kind of like reasonably expert in his work. And I, yeah, I was that chance. And, and uh, essentially, and I think that's partly because uh, when I was working with him, like some of the, the chat GPT was, I'm sorry, the GPT-3 was pulling out of his history. And that was one of the things I was looking at going, I don't think he would still say this. This is, you know. But anyway, so so he, <laughs> some of us might have been recognizing what he used to say, not what he currently says, or something like that, you know. But anyway, the point is that yeah, you you may not need to, and it'll be a really interesting question if if somebody is sufficient writes sufficiently about their old stuff, uh, you might not need to interview the actual person. Um, but if you want to know my thoughts about a software that was released yesterday, then you only have like one or two blog posts or LinkedIn posts or whatever to go off of, then it might be worth calling me up like this. Yeah. And I also take note that um, of your warning that um, artificial intelligence might make human uh, less intelligent on the long run. Um, but turning our side to... Oh, wait, Russell, I know, let's, let's argue about that a little bit. <laughs> I, I don't think it, it necessarily makes us less intelligent overall, but some of the skills that we used to associate with being intelligent go away. Like I said, like navigating. I, I, I'm yeah. sure that people, I don't, well, I don't know. There's actually, there's actually been a reversal of the uh, Flynn effect. Um, so it does seem like we're getting stupider. But I, again, I assume that that means that whatever it is that IQ tests were testing was no longer a thing that we needed to accumulate information on in uh, schools. So I, I don't think biologically enough has changed. Um, I, I do think that, well, okay, this gets back to what intelligence is. But um, I, I don't think it is necessarily stupider. Um, but if you don't rehearse being creative yourself, then you do tend to drop. Your IQ does try, tend to drop as you as you age, unless you have a challenging job or a very smart partner. That's a, that's a very interesting um, remark there. And I think uh, everyone has to reconsider life choices based <laughs> on that. Um, but um, turning our site to Brussels Maybe good now. enough uh, chat GPT would be a surrogate for smart partners. <laughs> <laughs> a sparring partner, yes. Great so um, I think uh, how to deal with uh, general purpose AI like uh, ChatGPT is the big question mark now in Brussels as EU policymakers are, are working on the AI Act. Um, the Commission didn't envisage uh, covering this sort of uh, language models. Uh, we have seen the Council basically in, uh, moving the post and saying, oh, let, let's let the uh, commission deal with this at a later stage with proper assessment. Uh, the European Parliament hasn't discussed this topic yet, uh, but we have seen a compromise, a recent compromise that basically says that if a content is produced with um, generative AI, like chat GPT, it should be disclosed, so it should be transparent. Uh, what is, in your view, the correct way to uh, regulate this uh, type of AI? 
Okay, so I, I wrote an article um, that, that apparently has been pretty seminal to some of the uh, um, revisions that are coming through with the AI Act uh, with, with my co-author, uh, Mary Hayatia, who's uh, Finnish. And uh, she, like, you know, like, signaled me in the middle of the night that she was in a panic, that we hadn't adequately thought about this and that the AI Act hadn't co- adequately covered this. And again, she wrote a great LinkedIn post about that. My own opinion is that that, and I know that you're quoting, you know, the people in the commission and, and the you know, council, and they're all panicking. Some of us were thinking about that, and I don't see that it's a huge problem. And I disagree that it's novel. Actually, this was always um, part of the AI Act that you should never be confused about whether you're talking to a person or or, or an AI. I mean, that that's in there. That's for. Um, that's not just so. There's like this. Uh, the top level is forbidden, and the second one is like dangerous, and then the third one is like pretty much ordinary. And and the one requirement for pretty much ordinary AI was that you make sure that you know whether or not you're talking to AI. So I that so this is not new, and I don't know why people are claiming this is new. Similarly, how do you know whether or not it's a good enough product? You know, so even for the for the dangerous AI, so like say that you have a, a chat, uh, one of these generative AI systems that's helping people decide who who to who to hire, or uh, who who gets access to welfare or things like that. Well, I don't see how this is different from what we were saying before. The the whole thing is that we're saying, look, AI is a product, and you have to do due diligence. You have to test and make sure that you're actually going to meet the criteria that are necessary, so that you aren't, you know, and, th- and there has to be ways to appeal and to check and explain. What was going on? Nothing changes. So I, I I really think there's a there's undue panic here. People and this is this is one of the strategies that we've seen from big tech. Unfortunately, con- companies that used to be trustworthy have openly lied to the commission during this process, which is nuts. GDPR only helped them, you know. And and why? It's not because it's a coincidence. It's because the whole point of GDPR was we want to grow the European digital market. We want a bigger digital economy. But how can we do that in a safe way? Right. And so the vast majority of the GDPR was about uh, empowering co- companies and they were empowered and they were coming and saying, oh, gosh, this is weird. Like, was it a mistake? No, it's not a mistake. Same thing with the AI Act. There's no reason for this disinformation to get poured out on there. There are, there are a bunch now of new things we need to worry about. But the ordinary product design handles this. This is not AI is not actually more complicated than running a hospital or running a military or putting together a you know a, a fighter jet. It is actually just another one of those things that humans do that we have to be careful about, but that we can check whether the humans were being sufficiently careful. So you don't release a product until you're sure that it's actually going to work, right? Duh, right? So you go back and you test it. So, yeah, I would deny that the AI Act is not up to this. If some people were not thinking about this kind of product, well, that's some people's problem. <laughs> but but some of us were, and, and I think it's fine. And on that positive note, I would wrap it up. Thank you very much, uh, Joanna Bryson, Professor of Ethics and Technology at the Hertie School of Governance. For this part of the episode, I'm joined by Daniel Leffer, Senior Policy Analyst at Access Now. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Luca. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Um, so, unfortunately, we didn't manage to have Joanna and you in the same uh, um, virtual room um, due to uh, our busy schedule. Um, but it's great to have you now. So, what do you make of, of uh, our discussion with Joanna before? 
Uh, I'm a, a huge fan of Joanna's work. So uh, first of all, I felt uh, sad that I wasn't uh, in in the middle of the discussion to to bounce ideas back and over, but uh, definitely resonated hugely with with my own take on on ChatGPT, on generative AI in general. Um, I think maybe you know coming from the the civil society perspective and you know access now like our focus is to look at users at risk uh, human rights defenders uh, marginalized communities how technology affects them both positively and negatively you know that's what we try to do so i think with, with that lens there's maybe some other societal impacts that you know jump out to me from technologies like this i think a lot of the media focus has been on you know the death of the college essay and uh you know journalists being replaced at buzzfeed i, I saw just announced that they're going to start using chat gpt or at least partnering with open ai um but if you think about how systems like this are going to affect already marginalized people how they're going to affect human rights defenders there's some other things to focus on that maybe haven't come up in the, the main news cycle. Um, a lot of, you know, maybe one thing about ChatGPT is it has very interesting safeguards that have been built in. And, you know, we have seen revelations about how those were built in. And it was arguably through very exploitative uh, outsourcing of labor, particularly to, to Kenya through this uh, company called Sama. So, you know, there was a price paid uh, for making the system safe and it arguably wasn't a very high price. I mean, you know, people weren't paid well, uh, you know, had really bad working conditions, but the price in suffering was, was quite high. But, you know, across generative AI systems, uh, large language models, multimodal models like DALI, Stable Diffusion, you know, which are image-based where you put in a text prompt and then you get back images. We've seen very problematic biases. As I said, ChatGPT seems to have like quite good safeguards built in to stop at least the most obvious, uh, you know, prompts for producing toxic outputs, the type of stuff that we saw in, in GPT-3, its predecessor. But things like Stable Diffusion, uh, you know, produce absolutely horrifically biased outputs. And I think that's a, a big worry going forward that the there's a, a sort of a scramble, like I don't like the metaphor often in AI, but there is a, a bit of an arms race going on about making bigger and bigger models, more parameters, bigger data sets. Um, and uh, it's led to an issue where in order to keep up in this race to make these ever more powerful generative AI systems, uh, the idea of curating data sets has just gone out the window. You know, we, we see these totally uncurated data sets, like in the case of Stable Diffusion, it's built on a, a data set called Lion that Abeba Berhan and people have done really good work uh, auditing that's full of totally toxic content, illegal content, violent content, pornography uh, and you know porn that's you know really targets specific demographics as well it was a fantastic piece on the the lenza app 
by Melissa from MIT Tech Review that, you know, really showed how it, uh, as an Asian woman, putting your picture into this app that for other people produces cool profile pictures, it sent back highly sexualized images and even deepfake pornography in some cases. So that's a big red flag, I think, with generative AI systems is how these biased outputs are, you know, not really being dealt with. Uh, and, you know, the, the downstream consequences that they're going to have on people. And maybe just to jump on that, Daniel, because uh, a lot of people say, you know, uh, these uh, we are using uh, AI, but to a certain extent, we, AI is also using us. Uh, so chat uh, GPT with its own more than one million users is getting trained by its users to become better. And so if we are actually in a race on AI, are we favoring a system that was launched um, training on data sets? I'm not talking about ChatGPT specifically, but more generally all these systems that we are seeing now uh, that maybe were trained on biased data sets, whereas, you know, uh, we are penalizing um, developers that are being much more careful um, with with their data set and and they haven't gone public yet. Um, But maybe at a later stage, they will find it harder. They will find it harder because the other models have, have received so much input already that they will be much more advanced. Absolutely. I mean, I think people who are being careful are at a disadvantage to some extent. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk, like there was an interview with Jan LeCun, who's at Meta, and he, he was sort of, you could tell he was a bit annoyed about how ChatGPT got all of this press because obviously Meta, Google, and other uh, companies are developing very similar models, but haven't released them. Um, and, you know, OpenAI did, I guess, take a reputational risk that arguably Google or Meta weren't going to take in releasing a model that, you know, ChatGPT is, is good, it's impressive, but it makes up completely random stuff and is very, very confident in telling complete lies. It's very bad at many things. Um, but I think a more radical example is Stability AI, which is the startup behind Stable Diffusion that actually released the model completely open source. And it's out there, it's being used to produce deepfake pornography. Uh, forks have been made of it. There's a you know something out there now called Unstable Diffusion and all sorts of derivative uh, models that are optimized to make pornography. Um, that are being used in really problematic ways. And there you see that, yeah, stable, uh, Stability AI are attracting a huge amount of VC funding. So definitely the, the people who are being careful are, are losing out. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting, I think, in, in light of the ChatGPT hype and, and boom and enthusiasm to go back to the paper from Timnit Gebru and others uh, from, I guess it's a year ago at this stage, the um, on stochastic parrots, which is a paper about large language models. And they make really sensible, fantastic recommendations about how these things could be developed in a safer way. And it's absolutely not what we're seeing, you know, to have real curation of data sets. Um, not this, you know, it's, a thing that 
I come across a lot in working on artificial intelligence is that it's often presented as highly innovative, uh, you know, really groundbreaking. But a lot of the time it's it's very cheap and it's things being done in very cheap ways and things being done to allow, you know, things to function in a kind of mode of austerity. And I think that sounds kind of weird to people, but the way that these data sets were scraped, like the data sets that these really flashy, impressive systems are built on, if you actually lift the hood and look at how they did that, it's depressing. Uh, like the really very, very little effort put into making sure that there isn't absolutely horrific content in these. And, you know, we should be, if these systems are the future as they're being sold to us, then we should be taking a lot more care in how we're creating them. Because as you say, the, the systems that catch people's attention, that catch users now are building an advantage. Um, you know, you only need to look at this Microsoft partnership with OpenAI now. What do you think of immediately when you think of Microsoft, B2B, uh, education? They have how many companies, how many educational institutions are using Teams, are using Office? And people don't know that they're signing up and they're, you know, accepting terms and conditions, which they don't have any real agency in, that is allowing the data that they're putting in to train these models like it, you know it went a bit under the radar but at the same time as all of these contracts with OpenAI and the new investment uh announcements came from microsoft they also released a model called valley which is a text to voice model it was oversold in the press as like this can imitate anyone's voice from a three second sample and it actually isn't that good but it was trained on data from teams calls and you know how many people who use teams realized that their uh, data was being used to train AI. And, you know, funny little things like this, like even, you know, tends to surprise people as well, that when you mute on something like Zoom or Teams, uh, it's not a hardware mute on your microphone. And actually the software still picks up audio signals, like what you say when your mic is off. Like, has that also gone into data that they're collecting, that they're analyzing? So, yeah, I think... Uh, there's a huge chance that whoever gets out ahead here is is going to get an awful lot more data that will cement uh, advantages. Since we are speaking about uh, this uh, sort of uh, unfair competition, if you like, and, and the need to have solid and, and robust uh, data sets, um, we should also look at uh, what the EU is trying to do now um, with the Data Act, uh, the AI Act. Uh, I mean, what you what you said about Teams um, also um, reminds me of the unbundling um, uh, provisions in the DMA. But looking specifically at the AI Act, which was designed precisely to regulate artificial intelligence, the, there has been, uh, let's say, some sort of. Uh, underestimation of this large language model in the original proposal. Um, so I've asked this question to Joanne as well. How do you think this could be uh, better uh, included um, or at least uh, considered in the AI Act? Because not, not everyone uh, agrees they should be included. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult question. I think it, it's very easy to see what the harm is what the issues are 
what should be done better you know we know that they should create uh, curate their data sets better they should not be full of toxic pornography they shouldn't uh you know fail in all these ways that we clearly see that they fail i think it gets tricky in figuring out exactly what legal obligations like what actual concrete text we can put into the ai act that will have the right outcomes so that is definitely tricky i think Article 52 in the AI Act, which had this original thing about chatbots and deepfakes, you know, can be reworked in an interesting way to think about generative AI. Um, and I do think things are going to get opened up again there. And we'll see that in, you know, these kind of final discussions of parliament, but maybe also in trilogue, because I expect generative AI to remain in the news and the hype cycle is definitely not at its peak yet. So I do think we'll see something happening around transparency obligations for generative systems uh, popping up maybe in Article 52. But I think the bigger question is, you know, what in the council text we've seen introduced as uh, Article 4A, um, 4B to basically have specific measures for general purpose AI systems you know, to put it sort of uh, not in a very nuanced way, what the council has done is they've sort of said uh, some obligations for high-risk systems should apply to general purpose systems, but let's let the commission figure out what they are and sort it out through an implementing act. It's understandable, but it's sort of kicking the can down the road. And in a way, it's removing the deliberation about those obligations from the ver you know the more democratically robust process of the negotiations that we're in at the moment and sort of saying this is a purely technical matter for the commission to figure out but i i think uh yeah pushing it down the road and, and letting the commission figure it out is, is maybe not the best way to do it and we should think about you know what obligations could be applied um there's stuff in Article 10 on data quality, data governance that can definitely be applied here. Like, a, you know, a clear example that I keep bringing up when, when this topic comes up is the if you look at the value chain from the Lenza app that I mentioned earlier. So this app that makes kind of funny profile pictures for, you know, people who look like me, white guys, uh, but gives deepfake pornography back to you if you're an Asian woman. That's built on Stable Diffusion, which is this open source model, which is built on the Lion dataset, which is an open source dataset. You can go onto Lion's website and you can search what's in the dataset and you will be absolutely horrified at what's in it. It's disgusting. It's totally irresponsible, the, the stuff that's in there. Um, and, you know, the reason that Lenza produces the toxic outputs it produces and that that's the type of you know system that's on the market that's the level of product that the ai act is is primarily aimed at at regulating but the issues with it come from further upstream so i think you know we need to think about what who we target within the value chain and what kind of legal obligations we put on them to best achieve the outputs that we want to achieve um but it it is tricky that we're you're constantly running up against language within the AI Act that's geared more towards specific 
use cases, you know, things like Lenza. And then arguably an, an app that makes AI selfies is not high risk. So in that sense, it sort of maybe doesn't come under the AI Act uh, per se, even though it, it is going to have these negative effects on certain people, on minorities. So I, I do think it's very tricky. But the, the other thing I'd say, and it's good that you mentioned the DMA, you mentioned the Data Act, because I think a lot of the issues with generative AI are actually going to be content moderation, content governance issues. Uh, you know, the capacity for these things to produce misinformation um, at, you know, cheap and easily, uh, you know, when they can produce absolutely toxic content, as we've said, uh, deepfake pornography, all of this sort of stuff. Um, it, it is going to be tricky and it is the lens that we're going to have to come at this. Another clear issue that that I already saw come up a while ago was somebody trained a GPT model on 4chan, basically, which is, you know, why would somebody do that? But they trained uh, something, you know, a, a model very similar to GPT chat on 4chan to basically make it mass produce horrible 4chan posts. And then that was hosted by Hugging Face, which is a kind of a GitHub type hosting platform. You know, it's many other things, but essentially where you can host a model that then, you know, people can download, fork. Um, and that got into a takedown issue. You know, Hugging Face were asked to take take this piece of toxic content down. But it's maybe for me, it was like the first time that I saw an AI model, a machine learning model being viewed as a piece of content and having takedown requests. So that's like a new modality in how we're going to think about regulating AI, uh, that it'll come down to where it's being hosted, uh, you know, questions like that. So it's uh, lots of very interesting discussions about how we use the regulatory tools that we have to, to do this. Yeah, and I think we are uh, really just scratching the surface. Um, and and just to link up the um, disinformation and data aspect, there was a couple of weeks ago a very interesting uh, joint paper from the Stanford and Georgetown universities talking about uh, these uh, malicious actor inserting so-called radioactive data uh, precisely to distort um, the AI model. Uh, so that's another risk to look uh, into for regulators, indeed. And and since we are talking about the data governance of AI, uh, just today we have seen a compromise in the parliament that would uh, uh, essentially uh, make uh, AI developers re responsible for verifying that the data obtained is was legally obtained to train the um, the algorithm throughout the system life cycle. So um, I would also like to see the compliance, uh, how, how the compliance would play out with that. Um, uh, just to conclude, since uh, I think uh, kicking the can down the road is a very um, uh, EU fashion, um, uh, I would say we should uh, circle back uh, maybe in one year time and, and see how chat GPT and its hype have played out and, and how uh, hopefully we will also have a more or less stable AI act by then. Definitely. So, 
and you know i've already seen it appear on some panels and maybe they'll have worked out the text to voice thing even better then and we can get chat gpt in for a, <laughs> a conversation yeah yeah uh maybe the next podcast we will do with chat gpt so uh, uh thanks again daniel leffer senior policy analyst at access now that's all we got time for this week Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evie Chiori. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening.